0: Forrest Gander is a poet, translator, and novelist whose 2018 collection Be With won the Pulitzer Prize. His most recent poetry collection is called Twice Alive. This is Forrest Gander. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to *Dunk Tank*. All right. Uh, I'm here with Forrest Gander. Uh, Thank you for joining me today.
1: Thanks. I'm glad to be here. I like your program. I like your blog. I
0: appreciate it. I, you know, One of the things I wanted to ask you just like right off the bat is there's probably a lot of people listening to this or just a lot of people in general who want badly to connect with poetry and they hear, maybe they read critics who, you know, describe their experiences with it. It's like, well, it seems like these people are having a profound connection. Like why can't I have that? And the reason I ask this is how did you, Maybe it's better to just get your sense of it. How did you fall in love with poetry?
1: Well, one, I wish there were more critics writing about it. That <laughs> um, and two, I think you, um, well, for me, my mother was a elementary school teacher and her father uh, was a Swede. And um, so this is going back to the, you know, the, early um, 20th century that he raised her, he would stomp around the house reciting 19th century poems, you know, these, and it seemed like that whole generation of people had poems memorized. Mm. And So he would, you know, you call me chief and you do well to call him chief who for 12 long years fought and faced every form of man or beast the Roman empire could provide. So my mom, um, liked poetry. And when I was a child, she, um, she who raised me and my two sisters alone um, would read me. Um, she liked Carl Sandburg and Edgar Allan Poe. And, oh, those rhythms got into my body and into my head. And
0: yeah. uh,
1: I was a goner. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there you go. and But you, you say you were a goner, but at what point then did you decide, like, I know you studied like geology as well as English in college. I mean, I don't know if you were planning on being a geologist at any point, but when did, did you have a moment when you said, okay, I'm going to be a poet? Like that's a, it's a big plunge.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was sort of a two stage moment. I, I thought I was a hotshot poet and, you know, in high school and, when I was in my first year in college, um, I showed a professor my poetry at Wayman Mary, and he looked up at me with these sort of um, weepy eyes and said, "Forest, these are terrible." <laughs> <laughs> and that that was a, a critical moment for me because then I thought, oh. I need to really learn something about the art. It's not just my self-expression. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, when I graduated, for, and then I, I, you know, at my company there were people who, uh, who were also interested in poetry as well as geology. Since I didn't have a father, um, I felt like I needed to be responsible and have a job. Um, so I thought poetry is not going to make it. Uh, I love geology love the earth, I'll major in geology, I'll major in both, which is what I did. But then the year after I got out of uh, college, I, I, I came down to third stage melanoma. Wow. I came very close to dying and had this time to sort of think in the hospital, what if what if my life isn't gonna be very long? Um, what do I most want to do? And and it was clear to me what I most wanted to do. What I was most passionate about was literature, was writing. So as soon as I was healthy enough, I applied to graduate schools. And, um, and, and I, uh, I, I studied poetry. I got a degree in, in creative writing.
0: Wow. That's, I, I had a friend of mine who passed away recently who struggled with the disease for years. And because of that, decided, okay, I'm just going to pursue acting in, in LA, which is very, I mean, it's a total crapshoot, but it in a weird way, were you kind of, I I don't know if I would say like thankful for that experience, but it sounds like it had a positive impact in your life.
1: It it did. It made me, um, it made me suddenly much more serious about my life than I, you know, had been as a, you know, a 21 year old. Yeah. Uh, And, um, And it takes a deep seriousness to choose to be an actor or to choose to be a a writer in a country where it's very difficult to make it in either of those fields. So um, like Cormac McCarthy says, your heart has to be so big that it can can take you through all your wrong turnings and errors.
0: And do you feel like if you had done some other job, like you could have eked out poetry on the side and been satisfied and fulfilled as a
1: writer, or you had to go all in. I, I wouldn't. It depends upon whether I was giving advice to someone else. Sure. In which case, I would say you can do anything and do this if your um, if your in, in, intention is great enough. Um, but, um, but and and maybe I would have maybe um, maybe it would have turned out that I you know, got a job as a geologist and, and wrote poetry on the side. But it I think the reason that um, whatever success that I've had in this field had to do with going whole, whole hog, yeah, going in, taking the risk, feeling like I could, Wait tables for years um, because it gave me time to to do writing, and that that was okay. I, I didn't have ambition to to be wealthy, or um, I just I just wanted to make enough that I could pursue what I was most passionate about.
0: And that the graduate school path seems to be, um, at least in the states. I don't know what it's like elsewhere. It seems to be like the path, especially for a lot of literary-minded writers. Um, Do you feel like that's a a good thing that anyone who is really serious about being a poet goes straight to MFA or uh, do you think that has an effect on the the climate of writing in the country?
1: Yeah, of course um, it does. When I went to get a degree, there weren't very many MFAs. I, in fact, mine was an MA degree at San Francisco, mm. and um, but since then, the number of MFA programs has increased logarithmically, and lots and lots of people go through them, and not all of those writers are going to have a career in writing, and a lot of them are just looking for jobs teaching. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that um, that um, it can you can be very lucky to be given a, a well, especially if you're not paying a lot of money um, to get a degree that doesn't guarantee you a job or a or a future. Um, and most good graduate programs will pay you to to be there, and that that's a really rich moment. To no matter what happens with the rest of your life, if you have two or three years where you can focus on something that you really love and really try it out and be around people who are eating and drinking and thinking you know, in, in the same field as you, feeding you. Everything's feeding that tree. That's a really lucky moment, no matter what you do from there. Um, but um, yeah, uh, the, the expectation that you'll get a good job after you do that, um, is an expectation that isn't fulfilled for a lot of people. I think that's okay too. Why not have Why not have a couple of years where you try something that you take a risk, and if that doesn't work out, you do something else instead of getting on some career ladder, you know, right away and just climbing up.
0: Yeah, and the, part of the reason why I asked is, is because uh, you, obviously a famously, you know, someone like Shakespeare who was not one of the university men, unlike his fellow contemporary playwrights. Do you feel on some level that maybe like the MFA culture uh, breeds like an over intellectualized poetry where it's, it's not hitting as much with ordinary people?
1: Uh, Well, that's interesting. I think, you know, that, I think that changed way before the MFA programs. It changed with modernism, you know, with um, with Ezra Pound and T. S. Eliot in particular, whose work really appalled a more populist poet like William Carlos Williams. That that was happening there, but also that people's um, like people's expectation of what they wanted from literature began to change in the in the you know, in the 1900s, the 20th century, um, the uh, uh, in, in in the 19th century, um, poetry often ended with sort of wisdom statements, little you know, little um, nodes of uh, of wisdom, and people came to distrust that. As people came to distrust. A single, a unitary speaking voice, acting as though it was speaking for everyone, and so po- poetry became more complicated, more inclusive, and it became more um, innovative in its strategies because um, because I think people needed that 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 old form of familiarity. Um, was losing its power as an art because it was simply banking on cliches. Mm. And that's why- please, uh, No, no, yeah. no, please. Well, also why, um, I mean, the the 19th century poetry was often rhymed. Rhymed poetry is really easy to remember. Um, and so it was more um, digestible by, by a lot of people. I think poetry is still um, uh, something that, I mean, I've I've memorized uh, hours and hours of poems. Um, When my wife was delivering a baby, all I did was recite uh, poetry, Um, but it takes more, maybe more investment or it takes a, 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 a finer tuning of the ear to um, to memorize based on changing rhythms than a very predictable rhythm with a rhyme that you know is like a typewriter ching at the end.
0: Yeah. Fine. That's you you were reciting poems while your wife is giving birth. I, I love that. <laughs> I wonder how often that's happened.
1: Only thing I could do to to try to make her feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: That's uh what's interesting about Uh, some of your poems, is that, uh, and and I've read some of what people have written about them, and sometimes people describe them as being experimental. And I've heard you in some interviews say that you feel like that's kind of an incomplete word, um, or maybe misleading. Uh, And and the reason I, I go on this task, or on this tack, rather, is do you feel like there's progress being made in art is is poetry like science, where there's clearly like okay, the modernists have discovered a better way to write a poem, or what's going on there?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, in some ways, like has art ever been surpassed? Has art ever surpassed the um, the paintings on the cave walls, right, or the you know first horses that were carved? I, I don't know that I could you know, say for sure that they have, but I do know, I think that um, art does have to keep changing. You can't write the same poem that Keats wrote now and expect that it's going to have the same effect, that um, that art has to keep renewing itself by making itself uh, change, and that people's ears change and people's sight changes, That Uh, Chaucer, he's writing at a time when most of the poets in English are writing in in middle English are writing in um, uh, tetrameter rhythms. And he's listening to the French Alexandrines and he starts writing in iambic pentameter and people's ears change. And now still sort of the basic unit of English is the pentameter line um, that, you know, that's, we even talk that way. No. We parse our sentences into sort of five beat um, phrases.
0: And, and on for your poems, do you feel like when you're, you're doing something that may be more what is considered experimental, are you trying deliberately to create something new or is this just something that comes about
1: organically? Well, um, it's, Probably both sensibility and my sense that art does need to have an edge, that it needs to be going somewhere, that it can't just be repeating what people have already done. Um, that uh, that major art um, lets you see in ways that you haven't seen before. So in, in my work, I am trying to explore um, ways of making that happen that aren't just syntactical They have to do with rhythm and form and sound and, and language texture. But I do want to, um, uh, I, I do, I am involved in, in perception and how people perceive world and language. And I do think that art and, and poetry can help um, shape that. I see.
0: And speaking of, of shaping uh, the world, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is uh, politics in, in poetry. It's just, it, it feels, uh, I don't know how you feel about this, but it feels like there's, and I don't want to name any names or anything like that. But <laughs> it feels like there's a lot of poetry in the air that is vaguely political, but it feels like it, it has answers that it wants to give you. And a lot of my favorite poems are like questions how do you you but you seem to have politics in your poetry here and there I mean it's there like how how do you get away with doing that without being uh you know the guy who knows
1: well I'm not the guy who knows Duncan but also (laughs) I'm really I have read a lot of poetry and because I translate a lot of Latin American poetry where politics are often, I mean, especially in the 20th century, Latin American poetry was, was often very political. And so was, um, you know, Russian poetry in the 20th century. And a lot of that poetry is just awful. You know, Neruda's Pan to Stalin is just awful. Pablo de Roca's, you know, uh, use of political cliches Really weakens his poetry, though he's a great poet, and so was Neruda, Mayakovsky. The same thing. I think it's the difference between writing an essay, um, where you do have answers and you're making rational arguments towards an end, and um, and writing a poem, is that you're is is that the poet thinks that the questions are more interesting. Um, I see. Yeah.
0: And and, uh, on that note, when you mentioned the translating, how many languages do you know,
1: by the way? Uh, I just, just English really, but I, (laughs) I I have Spanish. Um, I'm, uh, I'm not quite as fluent in Spanish as I would like to be. Mm -hmm. I get in over my head in, in some discussions, but, but I'm, um, basically pretty fluent in Spanish. And then I studied Japanese, but, um, I can sound pretty good in it for a little bit, but if you start answering uh, in ways that I'm not expecting, I'm lost. I see. So my translations from Japanese have always been with co-translators.
0: Okay. Do you feel like there's certain things in Spanish or in Japanese that you can say or express that just does not come across in English?
1: Yeah, of course, of course. Right. Yeah, I mean, in 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 Spanish, there are s- sound qualities that are really hard to duplicate uh, in in English, and that have been really influential on my own language. Uh, translating a, a poet, for instance, like Coral Bracho, um, whose um, whose slippery syntax and and very. Lubricious language um, is 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 very hard to write in English without sounding um, like overly heady or because it's a Latinate language. You um, uh, because it's more Latinate than English is. If you try to write that way in English, you s- it's sound um, over intellectual, over conceptual.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: English needs that Anglo-Saxon in it. And of course, in Japanese, their whole different, you know, uh, sensibility of, um, you know, that's, that is also sort of less, um, less rational, um, that that even, you know, a word like kokoro, which is, you know, it's like heart and mind together, is so different from Western Mm -hmm. Thought. And an old word for poetry in Japanese is kokoro no which is like heart, mind, flowers. Uh,
0: <laughs> that's, a, that's a wonderful image. Yeah. Um, do you, so you, you work with co translators on, on some of those, um, but it's got to be very useful to have a poet in the room. How much do you feel when you're translating this that you're producing a new poem?
1: Um, well, that's the big question about translation, but you you are producing a new poem, and anyone who translates my work, um, the book that comes from that, they've written every single word of it. I didn't write a, a word in Spanish or Chinese. Um, so the act for me of translation is an act of sublimation. It's an act of of getting out of your own head, reading someone's work so deeply that you hear the music of another mind that is not your own. And then you're trying to make that happen in your own language with every trick that you know. But first, it it has to do with disappearance.
0: Disappearance,
1: getting out of the way of? Of yourself, getting all of um, so that you, so that what you translate doesn't sound like you, which is a problem with some translators, that they don't get out of the way of the work that they're translating enough. I see. That's, but there's a, a spiritual removal of the yeah. self, of the ego, so that you can accommodate this difference.
0: And, and that that spiritual removal or, or sort of like the loss of, of ego, do you feel like that when you're writing your own poems, like you're more channeling something as opposed to consciously directing the experiment?
1: Also, yes, I do, um, Duncan. It's, um, it's that magic moment that you wish happened more often. And I think it happens with lots of people in different, you know, in sports, even in you know, when you're completely focused on whatever kind of work that you're doing, that moment when you disappear and um, suddenly two hours have gone by. Um, those are um, those are moments of great privilege, I think, that the artist looks for. A- absolutely. Do you,
0: and that's one of the things I, I heard like Robert Frost describe writing a poem is like it starts as a lump in the throat and then become you know you got to get it out for someone who is a professional poet do you have like a routine where you sit down every day and say okay at this hour i am going to write poems or at least i'm going to put myself in front of a piece of paper whatever or
1: does it just come it's a funny term that you use you know professional poet (laughs) (laughs) there are so few poets who actually Live on that profession. Yes. Uh, but um, but I know what you mean is but someone who's sort of dedicated my 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 life to this art form. Um, and now I've forgotten your question
0: though. That's fine. No, I was just saying, do you have a, a routine in order to sort of like summon up that, that creative experience?
1: I, I'm not allowed to talk about that routine. <laughs> Yeah, it's sort of embarrassing because um, it's, it's been so changeable. Um, You know, at at one period in my life when I had um, a young child, I was getting up, um, I'm pretty disciplined. And so I would get up every day at five and write until seven. And those two hours were where I got my work done. And that happened for years. And, um, and, But then you go through different modes. Um, Now, I don't write every day. I don't even write every week. I write recommendation letters every week. But I don't write um, poetry every week. I I do a fantastic amount of reading as you do too. I'm sort of amazed at what you absorb and and respond (laughs) to. Um, But the writing is a little more haphazard um, but maybe at the same time, I feel like at this point, I'm always writing, that I'm always sort of, but a lot more of it takes place in my head um, instead of coming to the desk an hour every day.
0: Do you, How much do you compose in your head then? Do you have full poems that you just are waiting to get out?
1: N- no, I don't. But um, but. I accumulate notes all the time. So walking, shopping, um, uh, even driving things occur to me. I make a note. I, I come back to those notes. Those begin to generate material for me.
0: That's interesting. That's, I, I remember hearing something about Beethoven just going on a walk through the park and hearing like the Twittering of some birds and writing down like something like uh, the, uh, the first sort of like motif of Eau de Joy and uh, you know. Yeah,
1: that's great. I love the stories of Wordsworth and Coleridge, you know, that both of them had to uh, compose sort of in their heads while they were moving. But Wordsworth would be inside his house walking back and forth uh, across his living room and Coleridge would be plunging through these hills which I finally got to see in the Lake District Um, you know brushing aside limbs and walking up you know rocky patches and um, and so they compose completely differently which is why Coleridge is a better poet
0: (laughs) well you you do a lot of traveling as well and that shows up in your poetry like did what is that is that something that you deliberately seek out as as like a creative uh, juice or is that just you know, sort of parallel to your life as a poet?
1: Well, that thing I said before about um, poetry or art having a lot to do with perception, I think it's really good for human beings to get out of the sort of ruts that we all make for ourselves in our lives, our perceptual ruts, and that um, becoming a stranger in a foreign place. In a foreign place, you become the foreigner. And that's a kind of vulnerability um, that if you're open to, um, opens uh, opens a lot of different ways of seeing and hearing relationships. Um, and I feel like um, it's that vulnerability that I'm looking for um, to get out of my confidence to get out of my habits um, and to be sort of n- naked in the world
0: yeah and, and speaking of being naked in the world uh, you the the poetry collection that that won the Pulitzer was uh, be with and it was very it had dealt with a lot of your personal grief and you know laying all that bare w- Was that a, a weird experience like, putting that out there and then winning this fabulous prize for it and having people praise it. I mean, I I know you stopped giving like public readings at some point of it. I don't know if you've changed that, but it it, was that that uncomfortable on any level.
1: Yeah, it was totally weird. It's, it's odd that fewer people have said that, but um, yeah, it was completely weird to, um, to publish a, Uh, a a book about um, this pain and this person that um, this remarkable person, C.D. Wright, um, who would have been the happiest person for me um, and who in some ways all of my poetry was written for. um, And she was the one person that I couldn't share it with. And then for the book to be like, yeah, what did it... You know how weird is that when people said congratulations right congratulations on you know on on this awful grief that you live with
0: and that's of course you know someone like emily dickinson published some poems in her lifetime but a lot of it was just like kept in her drawer and people found it afterwards it do you ever feel like there are some poems that you want to write and then just be like okay this is just mine and no one else gets to see this
1: yeah um yeah i do i think there can be um you know, for everyone sort of these these things that are so intimate that you you don't want to share i mean emily actually did want to share right but her, her times weren't ready for her um she was she was so far ahead of the popular writers of her time and editors that, um, but I think she would have been really delighted to have her work published.
0: Yeah. You, yeah. You, you'd hope so. Cause you hear about someone like Kafka who asked, you know, his editor, who, I forget his friend to, to burn all of his work and then yeah. it gets published. You wonder if he came back to life, you'd be like, Guys, no.
1: <laughs> like, what's I'm going glad. on? I'm really glad the editor, yeah, didn't burn it though. Yeah. Really it. The writing. And you wonder, it, you know, whether he, how much he meant it. Um, mm. But, and there are examples of, you know, of work that simply has disappeared that way.
0: <clears throat> right. Can't judge it. <clears throat> yeah. You wonder how many geniuses out there just somebody obeyed their wishes and and got rid of all their work (laughs)
1: yeah
0: yeah um one of the things i wanted to ask you is because you you've also uh you you write in so many different uh mediums and genres poetry essays translation uh and novel how did you approach the writing of a novel from uh, a, a different perspective that you write poetry. And what I mean by that is like, did you, like a lot of novel writers I've heard of just sit down every day and it's very systematic and poetry seems like it might be a little different. Um, What was
1: that process like? Um, It's true that with a novel where you have to keep in a, where it can be important to keep in the same voice and the same tone and where you're dealing with characters uh, not just for a day or a week or a month, but for a year, several years. That if you take a hiatus in in your attention to that work, um, you can l- lose that. And there are novels that I've read where you can tell, you know, this is where there was a pause, and and the work feels a little Frankensteinish. <clears throat> um, so that I think the attention is different, and also the um, the in, intention is different. That with a novel, um, you really need characters that uh, that a reader is interested in enough to you know to to follow through the reading. And poetry doesn't need characters so much. It's really the character is the character of the language itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a fascinating idea. That the the poem itself is almost a character. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I've, I've asked uh, any creative writers who, who've come on the show, and I wanted to ask you: Do you are you surprised that uh, technology, and particularly the internet, has not changed how people write as much? In other words, something like the printing press allowed a, a new form like the novel to take place because, you know, how could you write a 600 page book before people could just print them out regularly? And now everybody has a printing press in their pocket. And you'd think there'd be new forms and, um, you know, new possibilities being explored. I, maybe I'm just not familiar with it. Or is that something that you've, you've thought about or
1: uh, pursued in, on any level? Yeah, I think about it a lot. And at Brown University where I used to teach, there was a big interest in digital writing is one of the ways it was referred to. Um, and, um, and, uh, and then now there's a Japanese poet who's become rather famous because uh, during the, um, the disaster at Fukushima, when uh, everyone was evacuated, his parents refused to leave. So he went to be with them in this contaminated uh, town and uh, from which no one was getting the news. And he sent out tweets that turned into poetry tweets. Mm. And um, he basically wrote a book of poems um, using Twitter. Um, And I think that, All of the sort of registry of new um, new signs, new you know, like emojis and things, are are being funneled into the possibilities for poetry. But that thing you said before um, about uh, like what does innovation mean? I think people often look for the most familiar thing to feel comfortable with. That's why. We have, you know, velvet paintings with dogs shooting pool, or um, or or ordinary landscapes on our on our wall. That we we often look for things that um, that that give us the feeling of familiar familiarity and safeness. But I think that um, and so people look for novels that um, and me too. I love you know I love detective fiction. Yeah. Um, I look for, for that for, you know, for a, a certain satisfaction. Um, and then um, there are other satisfactions that, uh, that art can make when it's a little more exploratory. And I think people are using these different modes of writing that, it, that writers will always take everything available to them and, and funnel it in to feed the tree.
0: And do you worry on any level that like the shortening of people's attention spans can uh, make it uh, literary art less um, uh, like it it seems like something like war and peace just would not be written today. Or if it was, it would not get the play that, that it got at the time. Um,
1: Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's also a lot about, um, how our culture presents things were. So, uh, Heart Crane says, God damn that nostalgia for something always new. Um, (laughs) um, And Pound is saying, you know, make it new. And Jack Gilbert says, but he forgot to use the word significantly new. Mm. Um, The press often gives a lot of attention to things that are just new, but something that's significantly new is is different. Yeah, I worry about um, the way that language has been compressed to Twitter statements, to Facebook emojis, to um, th- that even when we type on our computers, if we're, um, we can't make errors that can often, you know, lead to discoveries or lead to interesting things because it's corrected. And our grammar is corrected you know, corrected according to, um, conventions that uh, that aren't exploratory at all. Um, so I think that that is a danger. And I think that um, that writers will um, work against it. And the, the great thing is Duncan, that like um, the Academy of American Poets has been touting this big survey. It was done like about four years ago about poetry in America. And it turns out that now, um, a huge number of people like logarithmically more readers are reading poetry than ever before in the united states wow. and the biggest increase in readership is among the young and people of color wow and i think that living as we do in an age of spectacle where we're constantly bombarded by incoming by ping pings by uh, visual uh, really fast cuts that there's something in our souls that's not being satisfied and in the souls of the young as well. And they're discovering poetry, which is this miracle, this thing that can happen to you you know, all by yourself in a room alone where just your throat is moving as you're, you're reading words on a page. Like how miraculous is that? That you can yeah. be transported in that kind of an experience. I didn't know of that survey,
0: but that's that's fantastic because, I mean, the our our culture seems to be so dominated by images and it's very easy to sort of uh, mislead people. I think with images, that's why advertisements are all they're not a block of text describing the wonders of the product. Like, yeah, that's uh, I mean, that's good news. So are you hopeful then, I suppose, for the, the future of poetry?
1: I think it's a super rich time for poetry right now, and not just in the United States, but um, in Europe and in, uh, in, in China and, and Japan right now too. There's a lot of really, in Latin America, it's, a, it, it's an explosive time for poetry. I'm seeing stuff that I find really uh, fabulous and rich.
0: And, and what about yourself? Uh, do you have uh, any projects forthcoming uh, that you, you want to talk about?
1: Sure, yeah, I've got, so I just finished uh, two books of translation, one of this great Mexican poet named Coral Bracho, and, um, and then a, a co-translation um, with a co-translator named Tomoyuki Endo of a Japanese poet named Shuri Kido. That'll come out from Copper Canyon. He's a very deeply Japanese poet and his work uh, his work has a lot to do with sort of, of philosophy and, um, and Japanese culture. So it'll be, and I've been, I was worried about the reception of this book, but I've been sending out poems and they've been, uh, just everything has been picked up. People are responding really favorably to it. So feel good about that. And the Coral Bracho is internationally um, a a star. She's already very widely appreciated. And her work is really interesting in the way it breaks down um, the the difference between sort of subjectivity and world. She keeps integrating those things. She walks into a room and then you feel the room thinking, Mm. um, not just her. So those two things, and then I've been working on a, a collaboration. I do a, a lot of collaborations. I, I really admire the way that collaboration models uh, the kind of um, social relations that I'm interested in, um, and um, and I've done a collaboration with a photographer named uh, Jack Shear um, and his photographs of. Uh, I don't know if I want to talk about it. Yeah, no, that's but, fine. That's fine. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, we,
0: we should also talk about your most recent uh, poetry collection called Twice Alive. And, and before we were talking, I was, I was literally just reading through some of it and uh, the language in it. I mean, you're using lines like uh, life is pure gratuitous magnitude. It, it's, it's much more uh, exuberant than, uh, than be with in a lot of ways. Uh, is that how you felt when
1: writing it? I felt um, at the end of, uh, of my capacity to write about grief and my personal grief had merged with sort of grief for the, the world. As, as you know, I have a degree in geology. So I've been anxious for a long time about the world's dependence on fossil fuels. Yeah. and uh, and what's um what that dependence has, what what havoc that dependence has wreaked on the environment that we're very much a part of. so but there's so much um there's only so much grief that people can take, and I wanted to find a positive uh, approach towards thinking about this crisis that we're in. And I had begun working with um uh, a very notable mycologist, uh, woman who studies uh, mushrooms, fungi, and lichen,
0: Mm. uh,
1: named Ann Pringle. And I was able to work for a couple of years with her off and on at University of Wisconsin and at this very pristine wilderness area adjacent to Mount Huron. And I was very taken with um, lichen which it turns out people know much less about than um, than it might be expected at this time. And they don't even really know what it is, what it is lichen. Like. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of us learned in high school, it was, you know, an algae or cyanobacteria comes together with a fungus and it makes this stuff that we see all over the rocks. Yeah. But, um, but it's more complicated that and the thing that's formed by this union, which seems to be permanent. They, th- those, the um, the individual organisms can't go back to what they were, nor do they function anymore like what they used to do in their previous state. And it made me think about, um, because I was still, uh thinking about my own relationship, it made me think about the nature of intimacy, two things that come together, that change each other permanently. And that may, um, a number of people are saying, including Anne Pringle, may have a kind of um, theoretical immortality. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that part of our um, problem in, in what we've done, you know the the havoc that we've wreaked on the environment has to do with our our sense of ourselves as being so separate from it, and that that um, that sense of our individuality has to change in order for us to make positive steps towards recognizing our implication in in, in the crisis. So. Um, thinking about how we are embedded in nature, nature is embedded in us, and about um, both human intimacy and our intimacy with the world gave me a kind of positive trajectory for, um, for writing these poems
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: about both um, ecology, I think, and about um, human intimacy.
0: It, yeah, I was going to say when you said lichen, I mean that imagery is all over the place uh, in this book. Where I mean, and you use very um, like in, in the, the the titular poem, twice alive. There's a lot of very like scientific language, like photobiont. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly.
1: And, you got that, yeah.
0: Okay. As as a poet, how do you um, when you're deploying very technical language in a poem? How how do you approach that? In other words, like, do you worry at all about just uh, sending people to a dictionary? Do you hope people take that and go and learn and explore on their own? Or how do you, how do you feel about that?
1: Well, we talked about um, maybe the way that our um, vocabulary, despite that we have more and more words for things, um, is kind of being diminished by the pressures of technology. And, um, and as, a, as someone who has a, a degree in geology, um, I've always loved the language of science. And I think that there's no reason that the language of science can't be funneled into, um, into poetry, into literary thinking. And of course, Not everyone is going to know what a photobiont is, but in the context, in the poem, you sort of have an idea of what it is. If you're interested, you can look it up, but I don't think that's necessary. I don't really um, expect people to read with a dictionary beside them. The meaning um, uh, should make itself apparent, make itself felt, even when the exact Definition of the word may not be um, um, may may not be completely understood. It has a texture. It has a relationship with the other words around it. Often, you feel your way through it. I see. Yeah. And and on the subject of climate change, too.
0: When we're talking about poets, um, like cultural relevance, it seems like climate change is something that if artists are going to be tackling anything political that's got to be on the list. I mean, was that something that you consciously said, okay, like this is something I've I've got to address. I mean, is this an important issue for you? I I imagine outside of poetry as well.
1: Of course it is. It's an important issue. It's a, it's a critical issue for all of us. Um, And everything else is embedded in it. You know, race is embedded in climate change. The people who suffer, the most from um, from the heating up of the planet are going to be uh, the poor the, and, and people of color um, who are living in places that are going to be most impacted by the changes and have the least resources to deal with them. All of us are involved in a crisis that we can't pretend to um that we're going to get past with short-sighted, um, with with a kind of short-sighted mentality about greed. The the um, right now, the Biden administration was just uh, kept by a judge from uh, putting a lease on, from from, uh, from putting a pause on the leases that Trump in his last weeks in office gave to the oil industry to do exploration mm. in areas that are environmentally hypersensitive. And the reasoning is that um, that oil will bring jobs and money, but it's like, it's a bad reasoning. It's it's like I lived in Arkansas where people sometimes felt like if their little town didn't take in, um, didn't, uh, take in radioactive material and become a dump for that, that no one would have jobs, but we can't think in terms like that. There have to be better options and there are better options.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that just reminds me, uh, not quite the same, but almost of the line from the Vietnam War, we have to destroy the village in order to save it. You know, we got to (laughs) dump nuclear waste in there in order to bring bring these great jobs.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's something messed up about that kind of thinking, and it's very, um, it's 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 again, it's sort of based on the absolute separation of human beings from the rest of of nature and the rest of all uh, all all life.
0: Yeah, and, and on on a professional level and as like a public figure, was it? Um... I had heard uh, I forget the woman's name, but the author of the the book Eat, Pray, Love, which was you know, super popular book, sold millions of copies, and she gave a TED talk at one point about writing the second book. You know, after that, she's like, "How do I even approach writing a book after the success of that?" Um, you've obviously had like a long, illustrious career, but winning a Pulitzer Prize is like a big staple for most. I would assume for most writers, it's a big achievement. Did w- w- did that ever enter your mind when you're writing the the next collection of poetry? Like, I,
1: do, do you see what I'm saying? Like, did it did it? I, well, one, I, I didn't have the pressure on me of that yes. massive <laughs> bestseller. Um, the book did did well. It sold well. It was it was well reviewed. But um, but there's just no comparison. So. But the pressure you know I also the pressure on an artist is not to repeat um, herself and uh, and um, and I'm interested in trying to drive my my work forward to make it better, to exceed myself. Um, that's really the wrestling match that that I have, not necessarily with. Um, with the massive publicity that I'm expecting from this book, of course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Did, did it take you, um, did, do you ever have like a set amount of time for like, okay, I wanna get a new collection of poems out, you know, w- within two years or something like that? Like how long did Twice Alive take?
1: So that's an interesting question. Um, there is a kind of policy with my um, or a kind of thinking with my press, and I think with most presses, that um, it's not good to release a, uh, a new book um, before at least three years have passed. And that kind of works well for me. It takes me about three years to uh, to put together a, a book. Um, Twice Alive actually came together a little more quickly than that and um, and I, and I had to wait for it to be released, which turned out to be fine because we were in a pandemic. Yeah. and It didn't need, yeah. Fair there enough. There wasn't much to do with the release anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Have you done any readings uh, of the book?
1: I've started to do um, some Zoom readings uh, in support of the book, but I haven't yet done a live reading, but yeah. those, are, those are coming. Okay, great. Do you you have like a a tour schedule or anything
0: like that where people can find out if they want to come see a reading? I don't know if you have anything on the calendar, but...
1: Yeah, there are things on the calendar, but um, I'm the worst person. I don't know. I have trouble promoting promoting myself because we're all promoting ourselves so much and it's kind of exhausting. But... um, the if I'm coming to a town near you, um, <laughs> you won't hear about it from me, even if you're my best friend. Um, uh-huh. but there'll probably be some publicity, uh, for it, and okay. um, that's you know.
0: that, that's probably a good thing, too. I mean, everybody's become a brand now, and you have your LinkedIn, and you got to advertise yourself. And It's uh, it, my generation, especially, is. is very much just attuned to thinking that way but i don't i don't think it's healthy so i think you're doing the right thing uh.
1: <laughs> thank you Duncan. um
0: well look I, i've already taken up enough of your time is there a way for people to find you uh you, you have like a, a website and, or a certain
1: uh, I have a web, yeah easy to find on on the web yeah
0: okay Super. Uh-huh. perfect um, all right, listen, Forrest, I'm, I'm, I love talking to writers, so this was a treat, and uh, thanks for your time. Thank you a lot, Duncan. All, all right. right. Take care. Bye. Thank you to Forrest Gander, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.